When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like rats, dominoes and chips. Mm. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of dominoes, which Sam mentioned just then is in fact all about the Vietnam War. It's about the domino theory and the collapsing of communist powers one after the other becoming uh, communist. Or that the history of cars is all about the militarization in Nazi Germany. Ah, fascinating stuff. The man not sitting opposite me because we're the other side of town during Corona lockdown, but he will nonetheless help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading professors of history. He's a very clever man and a very funny man. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. He's also a very excited man because in about Mm. an hour's time, I'm going to go to a real-life Roman banquet. Uh, my eight no. my eight year old daughter's school is doing Roman week at the moment. And one of the things that they are doing in lockdown is an online Roman banquet. So we have bought tongue, would you believe, to have in that Roman banquet? <laughs> tongue, like a real tongue. What? I know. What, is it it's long ex- and horrid? It's, 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 it's extraordinary. I should be preparing it later. However, we digress beautifully. Uh, but still, nonetheless, we digress. And the man not sitting opposite me because he's across town in his shed during lockdown. It is the truly wonderful, famous historical adventurer and my friend, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hello, James. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of our special homeschooling series for kids, which we're really enjoying doing. Please check them all out. We're doing all sorts of different periods and different subjects. And in each episode, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does. And today's a really fun one. We are doing the history of not doing what you're told, which, of course, for us is all about the Russian Revolution. But before we go into all of that, we need to think about brainstorming a bit. So, James, what about not doing what you're told? How shan't, do we go about that? Shan't, Sam. I shan't. I refuse. I refuse <laughs> to think about it. <laughs> oh, leave it up to me. Sorry, <laughs> that, was, that was such a dad joke. I'm so sorry for that. Uh, where do we go with, with, with not doing what we're told? It's all about disobedience. So it makes me think about about children not doing as they're told. It's about delinquency. It's about the history of the dunce's cap. 
to the cap that you would have worn as a child when you were asked to go and stand in the corner facing the wall. You'd have worn a sort of conical cap uh, hat that would have had a D on it that would have shown that you were a dunce, that you were disobedient and stupid. It's also about insubordination. We can think about insubordination in the army. We can think about mutinies on ships. It's about rebellion. It's about overthrowing. It's about the 306 British Commonwealth soldiers who were executed during the First World War for desertion. They were shot at dawn. Uh, many of them have, well, they've all been forgiven. They've all been pardoned. I think it happened in, in 2006. Um, it's also about direct action. So what do you do when you find yourself in a historical period and the system is all stacked against you? There's no democracy, there's no voting, no, nothing like that. You're being repressed. What do you do? You take react, you take action into your own hands and you seize the day and you do not do as you're told. It's also about not doing your told you're told in 16th and 17th century marriage. Now, this is a period in which I profess in history, and it's a period when men and women were seen to be very different and women were supposed to be subordinate to men and, and obedient. And and particularly within marriage, there are all sorts of how to be married kind of books called conduct manuals where they told women how to behave. But there are some brilliant examples of women not being not doing as they're told. And one of my favourite comes from a jest book, the 16th century jest book. And jests are basically, um, these are Elizabethan jokes, effectively. And this joke goes, it's between a husband and a wife. And the wife um, doesn't do as she's told to her husband, but she's a woman who is treated so badly by her husband. Her husband goes out drinking, he comes home, he comes home drunk, he's in a terrible state, he's rude to her, sometimes he pushes her and is terrible with her. One night, having come home, he, 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 she has said to she every time he comes home, um, he says to her, no, woman, let me lie where I list when he falls over on the floor. What lie where I list is basically let me lie where I where I where I am, where I where I where I be, um, where I have collapsed, and, well, where I've collapsed. <laughs> and one night after all of this, um, he comes home staggering around woman out of my way, trips over and falls into the fire. Um, and and he says, wife, wife, help me, pull me out. And at this point, she doesn't do as she's told because she says, referring to every other night when he's come home and fallen over, no, you can lie where you're list. And in the joke, he then burns in the fire. So, you know, it's all about not doing as you're told. Isn't that terrible? Some joke. Um, but clearly there is so much we can do here. Um, it's a fascinating topic and it really runs throughout history. And I'm sure those of you who go on to study history um, at school, GCSE, A-level, up at university, you will definitely come across this idea of obedience and whether you're doing it in terms of revolutions or, in as James did there, in, in, in terms of very personal relationships. Um, absolutely fascinating subject. But today we are doing it in relation to the fantastic Russian Revolution, which is one of my favourite historical topics, it absolutely is. What I'm going to do is uh, start by reading out, um, this is an extract from the memoirs of Duma Deputy Obolensky. 
And this is a man who is describing the first session of the Duma in April 1906. The Duma was a type of legislative assembly which was set up in Russia um, towards the end of 1905 with its first meeting in 1906. I'm going to now describe it here. The two hostile sides stood confronting each other, the old and grey court dignitaries, keepers of etiquette and tradition, looked across in a haughty manner, though not without fear and confusion, at the people of the street, whom the revolution had swept into the palace and quietly whispered to one another. The other side looked across at them with no less disdain or contempt. The court side of the hall resounded with orchestrated cheers as the Tsar approached the throne, but the Duma deputies remained completely silent. It was a natural expression of our feelings towards the monarch, who in the twelve years of his reign had managed to destroy all the prestige of his predecessors. The feeling was mutual. Not once did the Tsar glance towards the Duma side of the hall. Sitting on the throne, he delivered a short, perfunctory speech in which he promised to uphold the principles of autocracy with unwavering firmness. And in a tone of obvious insincerity, he greeted the Duma deputies as the best people of his empire. With that, he got up to leave. As the royal procession filed out of the hall, tears could be seen on the face of the Tsar's mother, the Dowager Empress. It had been a terrible ceremony, she later confided to the Minister of Finance. For several days, she had been unable to calm herself from the shock of seeing so many commoners in the palace. It's a wonderful description there of this tension between traditional Russia and these new people who are coming into the palace. So this was in April 1906. What's going on here is that prior to this, Russia is an enormous, diverse empire ruled by an autocracy. One man is in charge. He is the Tsar and he has absolute power to rule Russia. He's supported by the Russian church. He believes that God's put him in this position. He has the power to appoint or sack ministers or make any other decisions he wants without consulting anyone else. Now, at this period in the 20th century, most of the other great powers had given the people at least some sort of say in how the country was run. There was at least some element of democracy. But Nicholas, the Tsar of Russia, was utterly committed to the idea of autocracy. He was a terrible ruler, essentially. He avoided making important decisions. He refused to delegate. Um, he managed his officials poorly. He disliked confrontation. Therefore, he didn't allow the Council of Ministers. Uh, he refused to chair the Council of Ministers so he wouldn't see any conflict of interest. And he even encouraged more conflict. He encouraged rivalry between them. And then he also appointed family members and friends from the court into important positions, which led to corruption, incompetence, huge bribes, everything essentially was falling apart and the Tsar was the one man behind it all. This led to a huge amount of opposition to the way he ruled and there was a revolution in 1905, a series of strikes and rebellions. Now these rebellions are very much influenced by Marxist theory. We have done a podcast on Marx, you should go back and listen to that for a bit more background. Uh, this is essentially uh, the belief that history is dominated by class struggle, that there would be a revolution in which the workers would overthrow the middle classes and the aristocracy. 
So there is a revolution in Russia in 1905. It is a full-scale one, but it's really nothing compared to what happens next. And the Tsar survives the revolution, and he survives that by offering a number of concessions. One of the most important of those concessions was the forming of the Duma, the forming of this parliament. He, to a certain extent, allows the right of free speech, the right to form political parties. And uh, for a short while, it did seem that everything was going to be OK. But as you can tell from that description of the first meeting, there is a huge undercurrent of intense hatred and tension going through this new Duma. And in fact, uh, those representatives of the people who formed the Duma went on to become very, very disappointed indeed because the Tsar carried on ruling and he pretty much ignored everything that they tried to do. And then after that, it all goes a bit wrong. But James is going to give us a bit more background to Russian society to explain, explain what happens next and why. Excellent. That was brilliant, Sam. It took me back to my own uh, GCSE classroom and A-level classroom and undergraduate degree in history uh, where I studied the Russian Revolution. And it was one of my it really was one of my sort of favourite uh, topics in history at the time. And yes, so of course, what's happening in Russia is Russia is uh, an enormous country. It's huge geographically. It spreads, you know, from from the west all the way into into the east and and encroaching onto onto Asia. So it's very vast. And one of the problems is that there has been this desire to modernise Russia throughout the 18th and 19th century. But what we have is a country that is largely too big to properly govern. And I want to start by talking about some of the problems that we have with the peasants and the countryside, and then talk about some of the impact of industrialization and the emergence of new bourgeoisie classes, these sort of middle classes, uh, capitalist classes. And then I want to talk about the impact of the First World War, because what the First World War does is it takes a country like Russia, well, it takes Russia, that is backward agriculturally and is straining industrially, and it just pulls it apart and leads to a revolution, the first revolution of 1917 in March, when the Tsar uh, abdicates. So to talk about the peasants, now, Russia is largely an agricultural country. About 80% of the population were peasants who lived in, in communes. And there were some peasants who were wealthy, who were able to do well, who were able to buy up you know, a certain amount of land and, and, and farm it well. And these people were called kulaks. That's kulaks, K-U-L-A-K-S. But for most people, living conditions were pretty dreadful. And there was widespread famine and starvation. And the average life expectancy of the average peasant farmer in some regions of Russia was only 40 years of age. Both Sam and I would be dead uh, now, to put it that way. Um, also, much of Russia's land is unsuitable for farming. Uh, land is also in short supply because there's a huge increase in population. It increases by a doubles between, almost doubles between 1860 and 1897. Um, peasants are using 
outdated ancient farming techniques. Um, land is divided into large fields and each family was given a little strip. And what this isn't great for is is sort of collective sort of industrial type farming. So what we have is these sort of very small plots farmed by individuals. Um, and these fields were organized together by uh, peasant councils called a mere. Uh, and the problem was that that at the size of plot shrunk because you have a system where when a father um, leaves land to his sons, the plot family plot is subdivided and shared. And you imagine what that happens over generations. It shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And also. Um, a lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Most of the peasants were illiterate. There's no basic education in Russia. Uh, very few peasants could read or write. Um, the, well, most of them, on the whole, are largely conservative in their thinking. So they are loyal towards the Tsar. Um, the church is quite strong and the church is loyal to the Tsar. The one problem uh, for the peasantry in the countryside is, of course, lack of land and the problem that you are, you know, you, you, you live very sort of close to the to the margin um, and you can, you know, uh, and people really struggle. And if you have a look at, um, at photographs of this period, it looks, if you're looking at photographs of typical villages in Russia, it looks like um, a very sort of rustic, backward setting, uh, very sort of cramped conditions in the interior of peasants' cottages, um, thatch roofs, all that sort of thing. Um, so it's very, you know, very, 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 very different. Now, within 
the countryside, you also have another group, uh, the aristocracy. And these are the people who own the land. They're the people who have vast estates. They spend a lot of their time in the fashionable cities like St. Petersburg, for example, um, and Moscow uh, and, and, and less time in the, in, in the countryside. Um, however, they, these people number only about one and a half percent of society and they owned a quarter of the land. Um, so they become, they become quite sort of uh, quite a, uh, they become a group who are um, the target of these, of these peasants with their, with their, their unrest. Now, at the same time, we have uh, the emergence of industrialism, and this has happened from the 18th century onwards. And from the later 19th century, uh, the Tsars are very keen to see Russia becoming uh, a key industrial power and rivaling some of the sort of uh, the sort of powerhouse economies in the West. Because, of course, that then allows them to uh, fight the kind of wars that they want and to have the kinds of, of sort of central place on the world's political stage. And what we see in this period is uh, that the economy is taken over by a senior minister called Sergei Vita, who introduces a series of policies that lead to rapid industrial growth. And we see huge increases in the production of oil and coal that almost trebled, uh, iron, it quadruples. Um, and what you find is that as industry grows in any sort of political system or country, um, you tend to see people moving out of the countryside into the towns in order to work in these newly developing industries. The problem is once those people get there, life isn't quite what they thought it was going to be. Living conditions are awful. There's overcrowding, there's filth, there's squalor, there's terrible food, there's disease, alcoholism, there's low pay. Um, you're working very long days, the unguarded machinery. It's all the sort of stuff that we talked about when we did our podcast on Karl Marx. Um, and if you have a look at, have a listen again to that. And if you have a look at some extracts from Das Kapital, uh, you can see exactly the kind of industrial conditions that there are. At the same time that you've got a growing working class who identify themselves as working class with shared interests. And these are the sort of, these are the groups in the urban areas who are susceptible to um, the sort of intellectual revolutionaries and their ideas. Um, at the same time, you also have, as a result of industrialization, the growth of a new middle class or capitalist class or, or sort of bourgeoisie class that you see. These are the, the, the landowners, industrialists, bankers, traders, businessmen. They're also professional people. So, you know, lawyers, university lecturers. Um, and they increase as a group. And what they are concerned about as industrialists and capitalists is looking after the economy. Uh, they're also concerned about controlling their, their workforce. So if we apply a sort of Marxist model to that, what you can see emerging in this new industrial Russia is a tension between the capitalists on one side and the impoverished, you know, poorly paid uh, workers on the other. Now, all this comes to a head with the First World War. Uh, Russia enters the war in August 1914. If you read your AJP Taylor, you will know that the whole reason that the First World War started was because of the Russian timetable, train timetable. Uh, Russia had to mobilise ahead of time, 
ahead of other countries in order to declare war. So basically they had to set things in motion before war had been declared and the act of doing so meant that war was declared. So it's a very sort of pedantic point. But what this means at first is that some of the tensions that Sam was speaking about before, the tensions with the Tsar, uh, they fade. Uh, people are very loyal. Um, people are very um, loyal to the country, very patriotic, and they see themselves as Russians fighting and defending the country against a German army. The problem is, though, when things start to go wrong and things start to go wrong in a number of ways. And what this does, as I said before, is it exposes many of the cracks that are in the Russian system. Now, the first thing that goes wrong is that they don't have enough weapons. You know, there are people who don't have boots. They're short of rifles, ammunition, artillery, shells. There's one anecdote of, um, I think, a story about, um, you know, they're only I mean, one part of the Eastern Front, which is the, the Eastern Front was where the Russians fought the Germans, um, that there was only one rifle enough for about four to seven men. So what it meant was as you were going over the top and you were running out into no man's land, you would wait until the person with the gun in front of you was shot to pick it up and carry on fighting. So it's a really, really terrible sort of situation. It puts a huge strain on things. This strain of war is not just experienced by the soldiers, but it's also experienced by the peasants themselves. Um, and there are there are high casualties. You know, so so villages uh, see their population decimated. And this this is is appalling in in personal terms as well. Um, but also it, it imposes a strain on extracting food out of the countryside. Now, at first, this isn't a problem. There are there are there is production. But as more people are conscripted into the army, there are fewer people to actually produce the crops that are needed to go out and feed the troops. And also the government doesn't actually pay particularly well for these goods. So there's a there's a problem there. And and people are people are going hungry and are starving. And there are bread queues in the cities, working men and women in the towns who aren't able to be fed. Um, so all of this exposes you know, various problems. The middle classes, they don't suffer in the same way that the that the peasant classes do. However, many of the industrialists complain that they couldn't fulfill the war contracts that they had because of a shortage of war of raw materials, things like fuel and metals. Um, and among the aristocracy, they're also, you know, they're also disgruntled by this because the junior officers who come from these military landowning families see a lot of their people decimated as well, their young men decimated as well. And with the conscription of something like 13 million peasants, this also threatens to disrupt the, the, the workers and on, on the estate. So there's a real sort of issue there. There are also issues at the very top of society. The Tsar leaves Petrograd, um, which is a sort of um, the, the new Russian version of the Germanic name, um, St. Petersburg. He leaves that to basically go and take charge of the army, leaves his German wife in control. And there are real sort of worries about that and particularly about the uh, undue influence that uh, the monk Rasputin has upon her. So much so that in December 1916, Rasputin is murdered by a group of leading 
aristocrats. Now, as we move into 1917, with all of this sort of pressure cooker boiling, we've got strikes in factories, we've got large numbers of risings by the peasantry. Um, this, this sort of all boils over and there are, there are, there's very little sort of hope for the survival of the Tsarist regime. Uh, in January of that year, 1917, strikes break out. Uh, in February, uh, they spread um, and soldiers, you know, are, are you know, are, are mutinying as well and are having a really difficult time uh, on the on the Western Front. By March, we've got workers from the largest city of Petrograd going on strike. By March the 8th, over 30,000 workers are denied access to their workplace and weren't paid. And this leads to mass demonstrations. By the 9th, the protests escalate. Uh, Nicholas's, the Tsar Nicholas is briefed on the situation. The Duma advise him to order the release of emergency food supplies, but he, he, he ignores them, uh, which makes things even worse. And the rioters, you know, continue. The Russian police on the 10th of March look to sort of step in and to to sort of, you know, to end the riots. This is a there's massive bloodshed. People are killed, which sort of f further sort of fuels the sort of fire of this. And on March the 11th, the parliament disobeys Nicholas II, um, the Tsar. Uh, and alongside the protests, this is the first act of the Russian revolution. The Duma was informed that over 25,000 soldiers had mutinied and were marching to support them. And on the on the um, 12th of March, as the situation goes downhill even further, Nicholas I decides to return to Petrograd to restore army. And shortly after that, he steps down and abdicates. So there we have it. We have the abdication of Nicholas, and it's a major major moment in world history. What happens next? Well, fundamentally, Russia's problems are not solved by the abdication of the Tsar. And it it, it creates new problems, um, which then lead to a another significant step in the Russian Revolution. The Duma's Provisional Committee takes over the government, and it's something called the Provisional Government. And what you need to know about it is that they're very cautious about how they should move forward. They advise the peasants to be restrained, to wait for elections. They promise to continue the war. And what they're trying to do is to bide their time to settle the situation in Russia. And this message of caution um, really doesn't hit home in the way that they want it to. One man in particular is determined to push the revolution further forward, and he is Lenin. And he is leader of the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks have come from something called the Social Democratic Party. And they are reasonably disciplined, but they're absolutely uh, disciplined followers of, of Karl Marx. The, the party splits into the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. The main difference is that the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, um, believe that the job of their party is to create a revolution, whereas the, the Mensheviks believe that Russia was not quite ready for a revolution. And over the next few months, what happens is that the authority of the provisional government collapses. Uh, the war effort is failing. The peasants ignore the orders to wait. They simply start taking control 
of the countryside. And it's at this moment that Lenin and the Bolsheviks decide that time is ripe to seize power. And that leads to the Bolshevik Revolution, which we will deal with in another podcast coming soon. So there we have it. What happens with the Russian Revolution up to the point of the abdication of Tsar Nicholas? And gosh, James, isn't it isn't it so dramatic and exciting? It is, definitely. Definitely. Lenin is one of my heroes in history. Absolute hero. Very good. So, James, we've got some questions for everyone. We absolutely have. Now, question one is what was the name given to wealthy Russian peasants? Question two. What was the name of the legislative assembly set up by the Tsar in 1906? Question three. What was the city St. Petersburg renamed as? Question four. The Social Democratic Party was split into two sides. What were the names of each of those sides? Question five. How many peasants were conscripted during World War One? And question six, the last one, which will lead us on to this next new chapter we will cover in the Russian Revolution, is what was the name of the leader of the Bolsheviks? We very much hope you guys can get through those questions. If not, have another listen. I promise you the answers are all there. And James, do we have a takeaway task for everyone? We do. We do, Sam. We do. Uh, This week's takeaway task is answer this question. Why was the March 1917 revolution successful? So if you understand that the Tsar faced a revolution in 1905 but survived, why was 1917 different? Why wasn't he able to survive in 1917? Now think about the following factors. Failures in war, mutiny in the army, the Duma setting up an alternative parliament, strikes, food shortages, the Tsarina and the influence of Rasputin, discontent in the countryside and the formation of Soviets. Now, what we want you to do is to put those down as headings and then write a few sentences under each of them, explaining how it contributed to the fall of the Tsarist regime in Russia in 1917. So there we are. Little task for you. Yeah, good good luck with that. The key thing to understanding the Russian Revolution is how there are all of these little revolutions that all kind of pile up onto each other, but they're all slightly different in their nature and why they happened and what the results of them were. Um, Guys, I really hope you've enjoyed that. We love doing these uh, kids' homeschooling ones. Do please check out the rest of them. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. It's got loads of info about our books, our series of books on World War II and the Vikings and the Tudors and the Romans as well as our big book and lots of other podcasts and magazine articles. I hope you enjoy everything we've put out there for you to look at. That's it for now, guys. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.